This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And certainly one of the uh, big stories today, Bob, is, of course, the Trump administration moving uh, the U.S. to the edge of a trade war with China, announcing tariffs on $50 billion in Chinese imports and pledging additional investment restrictions. And then Beijing, a few hours later, retaliating uh, by announcing tariffs on about $50 billion of U.S. goods as well. Let's get to what you need to know. Andrew Maeda is back with us uh, to get us up to speed about this and the implications. Bloomberg News trade reporter from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Andrew, tit for tat, $50 billion. Um, How much do we know in terms of particulars, what kind of goods are being targeted? And is there a bigger, broader message that's being sent to both sides because of what's being targeted? Uh, well, in terms of the U.S. tariffs, uh, they're quite targeted on uh, technologies that China has identified where it would like to be a leader. So this is under China's Made in China 2025 plan. Uh, China actually just put out a list of products that it will hit uh with tariffs, we're just going through that right now. I mean, actually, you know, the original was obviously in, in Mandarin, so we're going through the translations. It looks like it's heavily skewed uh, toward agricultural products, uh, toward uh, items like pork. Uh, even snails are on there, I believe. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, the broader impact, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, we'll have to see uh, whether this cycle accelerates. Uh, we'll have to see if uh, there's any further negotiations. After this, the Chinese said today that uh, they they are reneging on any commitments they've already made at the negotiating table. Let's welcome in Ray Zhang of the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center in Washington. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank what, you. What do you think is the next shoe to drop in all this? We have the tit for tat, and do we have the tit for tat again? Well. De- negotiations had been ongoing since the last slate of tariffs had dropped. And consistent in all of this is the concern from the American agricultural sector that China might consume agricultural products from other regions. According to 2017 Foreign Agricultural Service data, China was number two among export markets for American farmers. Now, China also consumes a lot of agricultural imports, 25% of which come from the Southern Cone countries, so Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. I guess what's kind of interesting, though, right, is I'm curious, too, though, you know, once a nation, depending on how this plays out, sticks and switches kind of where it's getting, sourcing something from, um, they could essentially stay that way, right? So even if the tariffs get reversed, um, would China, could they find a better trading partner when it comes to this? Or should we remember, China needs a lot of ag products, and they got to probably buy from a ton of suppliers. That's correct. They are a net importer of food and have been since 2010-2011. However, Right now, it is seeking to try to go more multilateral with trade complaints 
against the United States, including at the WTO. That's the suggestion. That's the message we're receiving from Beijing as of right now. Andrew, is there any hint that the the Chinese are trying to get back at Trump personally through what they're uh, they're they're slapping the tariffs on? That's a good question. Well, as I mentioned, we're still going the going through the list that uh, Beijing just released. Uh, we're getting it translated into English. Um, you know, the European Union, for example, uh, is threatening to impose tariffs on iconic American brands, uh, often manufactured in uh, either swing states or uh, or Trump uh, uh, states, um, such as Harley Davidson motorcycles, Kentucky bourbon, uh, Levi's jeans. Uh, we're not sure yet if the Chinese are doing that. Um, I mean, it was a very politically savvy move in a way by the EU. Uh, we're just we're not sure. At the moment, it appears that the Chinese are simply mirroring what the U.S. announced today. So, for example, the U.S. said that it will come out with the first set of tariffs on July 6th. That will be $34 billion. The Chinese said that they will do exactly the same. So it looks at the moment like they are just matching. Is there a feeling out there, Andrew, let me first put it to you, that uh, this is the art of deal at work. Uh, President Trump doing this and then eventually everybody's going to be throwing tariffs at one another and then everybody's going to come to the table to say, which is something that the president has floated, let's just get rid of all tariffs. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I've said this to you before. I mean, everybody's read the art of the deal. (laughs) But is the end game game to just get rid of tariffs? Um, on On the part of the U.S. or on the part of China? Part of the world. You know, um, I think that there is a point where uh, countries kind of get pushed over the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually saw that uh, with Canada, for example. Uh, the president gave uh, Justin Trudeau a pretty rough ride at the G7 summit. Uh, until recently, you know, Canada had been saying that uh, it, it's, it was in favor of some type of renegotiating NAFTA. Recently, though, Canada has actually been saying that it's willing to walk away. So there, there is a point, mm. in, even in game theory, where right. it's actually in your interest to hit, hit, hit the bully back hard. Hey, Ray Zhang, let me give you the last uh, 40 seconds here. Where do you see this all going, and and what should we as investors be watching out for? So U.S. firms, top on their policy wish list has been greater market access to China, Mm -hmm. but from the Chinese side, we're seeing an uptick in different types of quotas, censorship for entertainment and services exports, and the imposition of environmental and safety standards. And right now... They're also the policy measures of technology transfers. These haven't been taken off the table in previous negotiations, Mm -hmm. and firms are likely to become increasingly concerned if they're not rolled back at some degree. Interesting Friday, that's for sure. Busy one. Andrew Maeda, thank you. Global Trade and Economy Reporter Bloomberg News from our Bureau in the nation's capital. Rajan, our appreciation to you as well. Program Assistant at the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center on the phone from Washington. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Much more than this, I did it my way. For an issue of Business Week, Peter Coy takes on the morass of global trade. Does America first mean America alone? We're lucky enough to have Peter in our Bloomberg 1130 studio with us. Peter, my first question is, is America first America alone? That seems to be the way it's shaping up. That wasn't, I think, what Donald Trump ever sought. He, his attitude was, 
America should be first in America, Canada should be first in Canada, and so on. Um, so each country should represent its own interests strongly, which seems like a fair point. But what we have actually developed since World War II is a system in which countries agree to surrender a little bit of their sovereignty, a little bit of their freedom of action in return for the mutual benefit of free trade and free commerce. We have a common set of rules that everybody can go by, even if they might not like every aspect of them, because they figure that having clear rules for the road will be good for all. And that's the system we've had seem to be breaking down a little And then bit. we know the rules, right? So then everybody's right. playing by the same rules. Right. But that's changing. It seems to be changing. Uh, what happened to Trump when he went to Charlevoix, Quebec, for the G7 summit is he got a lot of pushback from other leaders, much more than he gets, say, from Republicans in the House and Senate. It's on a world stage, and these countries are getting a little bit tired of getting – as they see it, pushed around by the United States and their sovereign nations. They have their own citizens to answer to. Right. Even if they want to give in to Trump on something, they can't just do it without kind of looking weak to their own voters. So that's a, that's one of the problems Trump is running into. Well, one of the things that Trump was elected on was that – you know, the old beliefs don't work, norms don't work, yeah. customs don't work, protocol, throw it out the window, yeah. the way things have been done. Even if they've worked for decades or even centuries, throw them out the window. But where does that leave the United States? Who are our allies now? We still have allies, but we've strained the relationships with them. And my article in Bloomberg Business Week cites something the Toronto Star came up with. Uh, it was when Trump was uh, speaking privately with Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, and Trudeau was trying to impress upon him that Canada is a strong ally, a country that can be relied upon in, in arguing the U.S. should not put steel tariffs on Canadian products. And he said, look, so that smelter in alumi- of aluminum is, was defended by the air base that you flew into when you came here to visit. And during World War II, that provided the aluminum. That it was went a into, U.S. air base. Uh, it, it was a Canadian air base, but it was built, built by the by, Canadians yeah. to protect a smelter that made s- aluminum for U.S. warplanes okay, that, that uh, fought the Nazis. What I, you write in your story, and I find this, I think, is important. Fighting threats to national security requires choosing targets wisely. So it makes sense to cast a wary eye on Chinese attempts to acquire advanced U.S. technologies that could be weaponized. Right? So – Using to say something is an essential security to a nation to push back yeah. at a nation. Yeah. Choose it wisely because in some some cases it makes an awful lot it, of it sense. It does make sense, and, and I want to stress that because there are probably people out there thinking, well, what, are, "What are these people saying? Right. That, that there's the national security not an issue. No, national security is very much an issue, which is why if you really care about national security, then you want to do everything you can to make sure that when you need to assert that. That you, it doesn't come across like the boy who cried wolf. Right. I mean, there's a great example which I wrote about in an earlier article, where they the Navy wanted to get rid of the pea coat. Those are those fashionable uh, navy blue wool coats that were all in the sailors' airbags, and they want to replace them with a nylon black parka. Happened to be made in Puerto Rico, because it has to be made in the U.S. Yeah. And the textile groups said that this threatened the. U.S. industrial textile base. 
just seems a little silly, but it's an example <laughs> yeah. of how people right. will assert national security to justify any kind of protectionism. Back to the crying of crying yeah. wolf. Yeah. Yeah. You assert that there's a possible lasting damage in trust between the former ally, well, the allies that yeah. are being strained. It, yeah. Really? Won't this change the minute Trump leaves office? Um, I, I think that there would be a eventually replaces him, of course, but if he's replaced by someone who kind of more believes in the existing network of alliances, I think you could have a rebound. But but if tariff barriers go up, one problem with them is that a constituency develops for mm -hmm. them. The protected industries are very happy with that protection and fight like heck to keep it in place. So it bringing tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers down is a project of decades, and uh, putting them up is a project of days and weeks. Yeah. And I want to quote something that uh, from a book I read, which I strongly recommend, by the way. It's called The Republic of Beliefs by Kaushik Basu, Cornell University economist who was the chief economist at the World Bank. And, and he was talking about norms and how uh, it takes so long to get norms to uh, be put in place. In establishing the rule of law, the first five centuries are always the hardest. <laughs> I love that. So I'm working on my PhD, courtesy of everything that Peter Coy writes. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out Businessweek on radio and TV and the magazine, com all this weekend. They call me the seeker. We are searching low and high for the latest on the high-yield market. Let's get into this. Uh, it's not just because some insiders of President Trump are said to be urging the president to pardon Michael Milken. Remember him in the 1980s, a junk bond king. Let's talk, though, about the junk bond environment. Marty Fritzen is back. He's chief in investment officer at the Registered Investment Advisor, uh, Lehman Livy and Fritzen Advisors, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. Great to see you. Uh, good to see you. Before we get into a lot of different things, what's changed in the junk bond market since the time of Michael Milken? Oh. I mean, it's it's that back then it was considered exotic, right? Yeah, it, I think that's a big change um, that it really has become a mainstream institutional investment in a way that it wasn't. Uh, fittingly enough, uh, last night the Fixed Income Analyst Society Hall of Fame uh, inducted uh, Mark Schenkman, who was one of the real pioneers in uh, bringing, bringing that into, as an institutional investment. So that's really transformed the market uh, dramatically. And, of course, much more uh, research. Um, you know, you always hope to find some inefficiencies. But, uh, the, the, you know, back then there were relatively few people who really had the credit skills, few organizations that had the credit skills really to, uh, uh, you know, to, to get the right uh, valuations for the securities. So very different, much more competitive today. I'm fascinated by the high-yield market because, you know, you just have a lot of crap to, to sort through. And when you do, you can make a lot of money. So it's fun, right? So, but but now we have the gap between the high yield, uh, the high the, the uh, below investment grade yield in the Treasury is getting narrower, right? Mm -hmm. Why and what does that say for the future? Yeah, the spreads are at a uh, fairly uh, narrow level by historical term, uh, terms, uh, not the lowest uh, that they've ever been, um, but. The, uh, it's uh, partly where we are in the business cycle, you know, the economy uh, going along pretty well. And if the Fed doesn't overstep, 
uh, prospect of that continuing for a while. So that mitigates uh, concerns about default risk. Default rates are at a low rate. Uh, credit availability, which is a big factor, um, is uh, fairly good at this point. So there's a lot of uh, justification for the spreads being narrow. Um, but there's also some uh, uh, chasing after yield because we're still in a pretty low rate environment. And, um, you know, in, uh, if you're uh, looking for yield, you really have to go out to, uh, to take some additional risk. Uh, but, you know, investors are reasonably comfortable doing that at this point. And according to the dots, we're going to get more rate increases. Is that going to – how is that going to affect the default rate? Well, it uh, there, there are two possible effects. One is that the Fed overshoots, uh, makes a policy mistake that puts the country into recession, and then default rates certainly go up. The um, ra- the rates uh, rise in the uh, Fed funds rate by itself doesn't have a lot of impact. The king- thing to keep in mind is that uh, these companies uh, are not all on floating rate debt or debt that's coming due uh, in the next six months. So it actually takes quite a while for a rise in rates to flow through to their total borrowing costs. And usually the in the immediate term actually high yield tends to do well because those rate increases are reflecting strengthening in the economy which helps them on the uh, credit risk side and that's what's key right what's going on in the economy if rates are going up because the economic outlook is good earnings are good you would anticipate that the default rate would stay low or maybe even go lower but yeah. if yeah. as you say if the fed ends up tipping the economy into a recession then it's a different game and we could start to see defaults ticking up so we've really got to see what happens? Yeah, at this point, uh, one uh, presenter at the uh, uh, CFA Society of New York High Yield Conference, which I uh, chaired for the last two days. Uh, and you've been really hosting what for the last almost 30 years? Yeah, th- this was the 28th year, and I'm hoping to get it right <laughs> you started eventually. started when you were 10. And <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, but uh, one of the presenters said that uh, they uh, he had had a uh, conference with some uh, institutional investors, and the consensus seemed to be uh, of their opinion uh, about it was that uh, the recession was out in 2021. Um, default rates are uh, currently uh, probably headed a little bit lower, and you're not going to go from uh, a well below average default rate to a peak in one year. So uh, we, we probably do have some runway before you get to that. So, uh, you know, high, high, highest level. So 2021, you're saying that we potentially, from the folks you were talking to, consensus that we've got a couple more years left in this market cycle? Yeah, that's wow. that's the now, uh, you know, the, the same speaker made the point that if you'd asked that question in 2007, probably people would have thought, well, it's not out till 2009. Correct. At least in, of course, uh, 2008. And, you I've know, seen even, this movie before. Yeah, and even uh, if you go back uh, and when people were asked, well, into 2008, you know, do you think we're in recession? The answers were generally no. Uh, so, uh, you, so you do have to have a bit of humility about this. You've just said. <laughs> well, no, you know what I, I mean. No, it's yeah, it's no, tricky. Yeah, it is. Right it now. is. I mean, I think there, there's a good case. You know, a lot of the, uh, particularly the uh, uh, confidence numbers are looking better. That's a you know yeah. that's a fairly positive sign. Um, and the yield curve, although it's uh, relatively flat by historical standards, you know, not inverted at this point, and that's a, pretty much a telltale sign. It's hard to get into recession without first seeing an inversion of the curve. And even after that, you'll typically have some delay until you actually get into recession. But, Carol, isn't this a market where you can lose three times and win twice and still make a lot of money on it? I mean, it's potentially, right? Yeah. Because we've got a lot of movement. Yeah, and you know you've got a, a big yield uh, carrying you, and that can uh, uh, offset a lot of mistakes. Can I ask you a quick fifteen seconds? Where do you think investors should be right now? 
Just quickly. Yeah, I think that uh, right now the emerging markets are something uh, that people have to take a closer look at in terms of really mm-hmm. find, trying to find something that's out of favor uh, and, and cheap. And uh, the master limited partnerships also still uh, under some pressure. All right, can leave it there. Marty, have a great weekend. All right, thank you too. Nice to check in. Marty Fritzen, Chief Investment Officer at Lehman Livian Fritzen Advisors. Sixteen percent of employees are miserable in the workplace, Carol. Not me. What, uh, not me either. But uh, there's sixteen percent of us. They're all around us. What, what to do? What to do about it? We've got Jim Clifton. He's the chairman and chief executive officer of Gallup, the pollster, and he has a new book out. It's called Born to Build: How to Build a Thriving Startup, a Winning Team, New Customers, and Your Best Life Imaginable. And I can't imagine anything better than talking to you on a Friday afternoon, Jim. But what do we do about all those employees around us that are miserable? <laughs> well, those are kind of two, sort of two different questions. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the first one is is the, about born is that uh, we're we're trying to address you know Gallup likes to try to figure out what the biggest problems are and see if we can help a little bit with them. But you know millennials don't start businesses, and uh, it's it's really pretty it's really pretty serious. The the right the right number of businesses start every year is about 500,000. That's what we were doing about 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's that's a proprietor with one employee. It's a very high bar to add, to have an employee, but it keeps crashing down, so now we're in the 300,000 uh, 300, range. But it's why we have so few IPOs, and when you don't have IPOs, you don't have publicly traded, and and everything goes kind of south from there. So, But, but the book is about getting early identification of people that have on, real entrepreneurial talent that's very separate from innovation. But what about all those employees that are miserable? Well, we we show the number somewhere between fifteen and twenty. There's about a hundred million uh, full-time jobs in the United in, in the United States. About thirty million people come to work every day that are really juiced and excited. Hopefully, like the three of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the three of us are, mm-hmm. and we create new customers. Everything good happens. We create new customers. We recruit people. We keep the talent in the company and all that. At the other end, you got I'm going to say twenty percent that are miserable, and then you got in the middle fifty percent that just don't care. They're come to work and are, I don't know, lining up smoking breaks or something for the after, for, the, for, for this time of day. But but if, if you want to, the, the, the variation, kind of like if you do Six Sigma, 70% of the variation in all this is, uh, can be explained just by who the manager is. Well, can I, did you write this book because it, it's disheartening because people aren't starting companies like they used to, at least at the rate that they used to? Well, I didn't write it because I was dis- I am disheartened. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but the biggest thing is, our, um, w- w- we have d- declining dynamism, regardless of what you read in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or here on Bloomberg about how well the economy is doing. I mean, I, I-, I want to say the same thing too. But if you divide it like economists do by the number of citizens, mm-hmm. which is called uh, GDP per capita or productivity, it keeps going down every year. Right. And I don't know why nobody cites that one, but it. Means means that we don't make – and uh, the GDP is, of course, all the stuff we make and sell each other, and they add it up. It's kind of like total sales and all that. Per person, that's going down. If you track that little monster all the way back, you track it back to we don't have new businesses starting. Second thing is, the, is that in the first five years, they used to if – if this was a cattle herd, we'd be talking about calves right now. The calves aren't fattening like they used to. 
and that's where all the middle class jobs are. So as far as the total dynamism of our economy, if you say what's the single biggest problem Gallup has found, it's a, is that millennials don't start businesses, and somehow we got to fix it fast. Well, what do, how do we get the seventy percent of the people that go to work every day uh, in some measure of unhappiness? And what's the first step into getting them to do their own thing? I'm not sure I understand your question. It, well, how the, do we get the, people the, to start businesses? Okay. The, I just want to be real clear. The, the happiness people have in the workplace doesn't have a lot to do with the starting part. The starting part, what we find is that if you take a 1,000 people, we can line them up by IQ or by SAT scores or something like that, and it really works. So if you say, here's the top 10% SAT scores between 1,400 and 1,600, they can read a book, recall, reason faster than somebody down at, down at the bottom. If you try to line them up by the likelihood that they have the determination, and I'm going to call it extreme grit, to start a company, remember, this has nothing to do with innovation. This is actually the alpha male or alpha female that can build something big. We don't know who those people are. What, what, what we believe is that if we get real intentional about it, we've created tests. That's what's in that Born to Build. It has all the results of the research that we did. But if you have a thousand kids, there'll be. If you said how many Steve Jobs are in there, the answer is about five. Hmm. Somebody that can build a business of fifty million or more, and we need tens of thousands of those. That's about two to five percent. The problem is we don't know who they are. And, and universities all across the country treat all of them the same. Right. And so what they're doing is they're just wasting. Because you go around these universities into those entrepreneurial labs, hell, there's nothing coming out of them at all. All right. Got to run. Jim, interesting. Something to think about on this Friday. Jim Clifton, Sherman and Chief Executive Officer at Gallup, uh, on the phone from Washington. The book, from Gallup, Born to Build, How to Build a Thriving Startup, a Winning Team, New Customers, and Your Best Life Imaginable. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Helping us through the last nine and a half minutes of market open on this very busy week, we have in our Bloomberg 1130 studio... Henley Smith, he's the Vice President and Senior Relationship Manager at Stonecastle Cash Management, which handles about $13 billion. And uh, I, what I wanted, I wanted to ask you about money markets because you're, you're, you're a kind of an expert on the money markets. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's $3 trillion. Uh, uh, the industry is $3 trillion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. What, what's the latest? Well, it's, you know, again, it's an asset allocation that's been kind of a, a wasting asset for the last 10 years because interest rates have been at zero. But now that you're starting to see interest rates move up and more to the point where – some of these money market funds are paying uh, over 2%. Uh, a lot of corporate treasurers, CFOs, and family offices as well are starting to look at cash and saying, hey, you know, 2% is not too bad for uh, something that's liquid. So uh, in my travels over the last couple of months uh, with Stonecastle, I've seen a lot more interest in the money market space. And there continues to be some challenges and, 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 and things that you have to be aware of, some pitfalls. And first off was the reform of the money market space that happened in 2016, which continues 
to drive the markets at, at this point. So, You talk about momentum or you talk about interest. Is it actual participation in it or is there just people talking about it in terms uh, of l- movements? A little bit of both. I mean, okay. I think uh, as we've talked about before, uh, for individual investors and family office investors, uh, there's always been kind of a more allocation of cash because of the uncertainty of the markets. You know, equity markets being priced at high valuations, long-term bond markets being priced at high valuations, just general uncertainty. So uh, I think high net worth individuals and family offices have moved more into cash just as a protective diversification. Uh, Corporates, uh, you know, again, I think with the economy doing well, uh, businesses doing well, they're generating more cash. Uh, Some some uh, companies that we talked to are starting to repatriate back in because of the changes. It's not, uh, the not flood a lot. That we all no, not a lot. It? It's it's, it's it hasn't been as much as we thought it was going to be. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of piecemeal, uh, but it has uh, has happened. And, and as again, I think uh, at this point, with um, short term interest rates being where they are, again moving earlier this week, uh, and money market funds and uh, other types of investments, FDIs and C insured, uh, in particular, you're starting to see uh, people focus more on the asset class as a true allocation. And that's not a, an indication that people are uh, trying to t- trying to cut their risk. It's just an easy an easy place to put their money. Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, okay. again, I think um, up until now it's been uh, you know let's hide out there because of the, of the volatility and uncertainty. I think now that's kind of changed. Now the rates are starting to get better. So again, you know, it's not such a bad idea uh, to keep some cash on hand, and it's paying me something now where it was zero before. Right. So I talked to a lot of corporate treasurers where before it was just keep it safe, don't r- risk my principal. It's just return of principal uh, at this point. Now we're starting to talk, you know, return uh, on that principle again, which is which is refreshing for a guy like me. We are talking a lot more about um, IEOR, the interest rates yes. uh, on excess reserves. And our own um, Alex Harris here covers the bond market, um, kind of really has brought it to our attention here and has been writing about it. Um, important to watch? A little bit. I think, uh, again, it's kind of those little policy tools uh, that the Fed brought out this week. Again, they raised it by 20 basis points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see the um, the IOER really as kind of a governor to the funds target. That they, when you look at it, and I track the effective funds rate, uh, it really has been a trading at the upper band uh, of late. And I think the Fed didn't want that to get out of hand. Mm-hmm. So by raising the, uh, the rate they're paying on um, interest on excess reserves, reserves yeah. it keeps it a, a kind of a governor on that rate. They do definitely want to keep it within that band. And some are expecting uh, expecting that maybe that's telling uh, uh, the markets that, you know, the end of this tightening cycle might be near. I, I haven't figured that one out just yet. Uh, I still think if you look at the, the dot plots and you look at what the governors have saying. So by raising it, the end of this tightening yeah, cycle? Yeah, because, again, I, I think they want to keep uh, the rates a little bit, you know, again, they don't yeah. want it to grow above, you know. Right. They want it to well, have a little bit of more control Haley, over it. do you feel like... The Fed is getting dangerously close to kind of tipping the economy into recession. I mean, you look um, at the yield curve and it doesn't necessarily mean just because it's flattening, it's going to invert. That's true. I mean, again, that's been a big argument in the bond markets. Is the flattening curve good or is it bad? I mean, again, I think what's happened up until this point, it's been more technical because you've had the end of QE. Uh, you've had deficit spending growing, of course, with what's happening in Washington. So you've had this tremendous issuance of Treasury bills in particular to fund that 
gap. And that's really flattened the curve. Um, now you're starting to see that flattening happening where you know, bill rates, treasury bill rates are staying pretty stable of late and the 10-year note has rallied. So maybe some longer term bond uh, participants are saying, you know what, I can see out a year from now and say maybe uh, maybe the, the, the economy is not going to be growing as much. But I, I, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. I still think it's more to do with the ending of QE uh, with deficit spending is really flattening the curve. Uh, but again, everyone thinks that if it inverts, right. it's ultimately right. going to be a recession. You know, I have to confess something, Carol. I really love it when our guests blame the Fed. For anything, oh, for absolutely. the weather, for the you know the, the breakup with a girlfriend. I don't know, but a you're not blam- like that. you're not really blaming the Fed here. No, I mean again, I, I think the, the the concern I would have is that the consensus is so concentrated right now. The Fed's been transparent. I mean, I grew up in a you know in a Paul Volcker Fed. I grew up in, a, in an Alan Greenspan Fed where we yeah. used to watch the briefcase yes. and see what was happening with the, the briefcase. briefcase Remember that? Absolutely, the is papers were flying is it everywhere. A thick briefcase. That's is when it, it was not... fun, but uh, now it's. The Fed used to surprise us. Yes. We'd like they, come to work before the market opened. They used to, they used to tighten on a 300. Henley Smith, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 